HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are so pleased to be able to welcome to our show Raquel Wills, who is appearing at the Odyssey Bookshop tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, Raquel Wills is an award-winning writer, activist, and media strategist dedicated to black transgender liberation. She's been the communications director for the Ms. Foundation for Women and executive editor of Out Magazine and national organizer for the Transgender Law Center. She has a new book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom. We are so pleased to be able to speak with you today, Raquel. We appreciate your taking the time to be with us, and we are thrilled that you're coming to the Valley and will be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley tomorrow. I'd like to ask you, to share with us the reason for the title of your book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom. Could you explain that to us, please? Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, It's definitely an honor. Um, So The Risk It Takes to Bloom, uh, I really was inspired by a short poem uh, that I encountered when I was younger. Um, actually, Alicia Keys adapted it for the intro of one of her albums. But essentially, the poem was, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to bloom. And I, that really resonated for me as a Black trans woman from the South. Um, I just thought about the different moments in my life where I was called to take some risks to become the person that I am, despite, of course, living in a world and a society that often has not understood who I am. Well, help us understand. You write and you have written quite extraordinary memoir that has had me thinking about many of the issues you raise. But you tell your story. You tell your a life story in this memoir. And there were many changes and many phases. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with our listeners some of them, and then I have any number of questions for you about them. So perhaps you could give us an overview of your memoir. Yes, of course. Well, I we have to go all the way back to my hometown of Augusta, Georgia. So I am a Southern girl through and through, if you can't tell from the accent. And I grew up in a family that was very devoutly Catholic. So as you can imagine, growing up with all of those uh, layers of traditionalism and expectations were very interesting um, as someone who was starting to find themselves to be more uh, gender nonconforming as a kid. So there was bullying. um, There was a whole ordeal of trying to figure out how to tell my parents as a youth. Um, And then, of course, once I kind of tell my parents that I'm gay, then I start to realize as I go into college, oh, actually, there's something deeper here. It's actually more there's a gender experience that I need to articulate. So a lot of the book really focuses on, of course, that coming into my identity um, from that environment, but then later embarking on a career in journalism and media Um, as an openly black trans woman. And this is really starting this career right before the trans visibility era as we know it today. So about 10 or so years ago. 
So we're chronicling this journey, of course, through the identity, but of course, to a a commitment to social justice, really a lifelong commitment. I would like to uh, have you share a bit more with us, if you would, about your your phases, I know that's not quite the word I want, but the changes you've been through, the transitions that you've accomplished. You, you write about uh, coming out as a gay boy, a gay man in college. You write about being a drag performer. You say you gave it up because it didn't feel authentic to you anymore. And I would, I, I was struck by, let me read you back two sentences if I might. It's in your chapter titled Chrysalis. And you said, my mind prepared, you say, my mind prepared an altar for the old me. I succumbed to the woman inside me, relinquishing that longstanding belief that my femininity femininity was some kind of disease. You say you felt yourself as a woman. I would appreciate knowing, if you could share with us, what that felt like. Was there a precipitating moment? Was there an aha moment? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, I can't say that there was one moment. Of course, in the book, I talk about, um, I guess, as you put it, the different phases. I think it's been more of an awakening. And and as I got into my college years, it was really kind of understanding, oh, all of these corrections that I was experiencing, um, particularly from my father trying to, in, in an essence, quote, unquote, butch me up, um, or from peers who, you know, would hurl slurs like, oh, you're gay, or oh, you're just like a girl, um, to just this kind of sense of these expectations of masculinity just being uncomfortable for me. Um, a lot of that really culminated in me starting to understand my gender as um, as a woman. And I think those experiences with drag, as you discussed, gave me freedom to kind of explore, okay, well, what is my expression? Um, what is this femininity that's been here that I haven't always been able to tap into? Um, so it is interesting. I mean, I, I think now, of course, some 10 years or so removed from those experiences, um, yeah, I would imagine to the average person, that sounds like a lot to go through, um, to have these kind of different experiences with gender. But I think what I hope folks come away from this book with is an understanding that we all are kind of given boxes and sets of rules and expectations that we probably fall short of and we have the freedom and the wherewithal to uh, determine our destinies. And for me, a lot of it was figuring out how to be brave enough to listen to my inner voice, to understand that all of these things that have been called a light against me actually weren't. Those were the things that give me power. Uh, Raquel Wells, in your book, The Risk It Takes to Bloom on Life and Liberation, you tell a story about going out with some friends. Uh, This was post your surgery. And you 
tell this really moving, very frightening in some ways and uh, enlightening story in a lot of ways, um, which makes the point uh, that uh, genitalia doesn't define sex or gender. And I'm wondering if I, you think that's correct and uh, uh, interpretation of what you wrote, uh, and I wish you would explain more about that to us. Well, the chapter that you're speaking to, I would actually say that the more important takeaway um, beyond kind of the focus on genitalia is that sexual violence is something that people across genders experience. Um, in that particular story, I was talking about being out, as you said, with some friends and encountering some men who were interested in us. And, of course, we were all trans women of varying different experiences and uh, having a moment where a guy groped me um, and violated me. And I think the experience that I was discussing in that moment was really talking about, I think, the different kind of vulnerability I felt um, as my body had changed. And, of course, as people's reactions to my body and the world's reactions to my body had changed post-bottom surgery. Um, so I hope that people are able to uh, understand, I think, the deeper message there is that we often don't have space to talk about trans people's experiences with sexual violation um, because there's often just a prurient interest in our genitalia. Um, and, and I think what's been interesting as I have shared the, the book and the story, these stories with the world in the last few weeks is I think we haven't um, evolved enough as a society to understand the complexity of trans people and that we have full lives. And so there's often such a sensationalized curiosity with this idea that, oh, people are just changing genders, you know, without kind of a deeper sense of who we are, um, a deeper sense of, the, again, the complexity of identity. And then, of course, there's still such a, a sensationalized interest in our genitalia. So, I hope that we will continue to have more and more stories from trans people that are vulnerable and authentic and that more and more folks who are not trans will understand that actually we're all kind of having gender experiences. We all need to be interested in interrogating um, where we fall within the gender spectrum and how we think about um, the validation maybe that we're all looking for and in, in being respected in who we are. You've taken an amazing journey. What I'd like to know from your perspective is what makes a trans woman trans? What's the defining or the line that is crossed or not crossed? And maybe that's a bad way to phrase the question, but I'd appreciate your perspective. Well, transness is really, as a label, defining folks who do not identify with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So we all know that people are, uh, well, assigned a gender at birth, right, based on what people perceive to be our sex or 
you know, usually it's just genitalia, right? There's often these discussions around, well, no, it's not just about genitalia. It's about chromosomes. It's about all of these things. But often um, people actually are not having their chromosomes tested to know what all they have and all of that. So it is important for us to, to be able to discuss, yes, we have bodies that are sex and we may have certain body configurations. But our gender experience is something different. And I think that that is what trans folks are constantly trying to contend with in a society that conflates all of this, not to mention also sexual orientation. So when I talk about my trans womanhood, I am expressing that my journey towards womanhood may be different than other women. Um, it has been, again, an unfolding experience. It has not been something that uh, I've been told is my experience, right? There's a different kind of fight and struggle that I think trans women in particular have around uh, claiming and owning our identity. Um, and, you know, I, this is kind of the often um, alluded to part, but I want folks to understand that, you know, there's no competition here. I think there's a lot of discussion in our society, especially right now, often from the conservative side around this idea of replacing someone. You know, there's such a fear that trans people are trying to replace cis people in some way, and particularly the trans women are trying to replace cis women. I think that that is a very gross mischaracterization of our experiences. Trans women are just trying to live our lives on our own terms in our most comfortable ways, cozy in our skin, as Beyonce might say. Um, and we deserve that just like anyone else does. And I hope that we can, move into a society that affords us all space to express ourselves as freely as possible with the least amount of judgment, discrimination, and violence possible. We are speaking with Raquel Wills, whose new book is The Risk It Takes to Bloom. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop tomorrow evening for a book reading and signing, a Q&A and discussion. That's at 7 o'clock at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley. We are going to ask Raquel, I really have been thinking about this the last couple of days um, as I've been reading your book, which is what life feels like as a woman that is so different for you. We'll pick that up in just a minute. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Berkshire East Ski Resort? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Enjoy great skiing and riding close to home. With massive upgrades and 100% snowmaking coverage, they are ready to provide an awesome experience every time you visit, as well as fun outdoor adventures year-round. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Rachel Maddow's new book is Prequel, The American Fight Against Fascism. Get it now at Broadside Bookshop. Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, is new from Heather Cox Richardson. And The Vaster Wilds is a new novel from Lauren Groff, a story of faith and survival set in the wilderness of early New England. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store. Then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. Have you heard about concierge medicine? It's a different way to do healthcare. A complete wellness package, which includes greater access to your doctor and more personalized care for an annual membership fee. Hi, I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson. I'm proud of the excellent care that Atkinson Family Practice has provided for 15 years and counting. In addition to our main practice, we're excited to begin offering concierge medicine. Is concierge right for you? Learn more at atkinsonfamilypractice.com concierge. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Raquel Willis, whose new book is The Risk It Takes to Bloom. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop on Thursday, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock for a book reading, a signing, a Q&A, and discussion. It's a fascinating memoir. I, I have been thinking uh, over the past few days as I've uh, read your book, that I really wanted to understand more about not just the experience and the differences of growing up female or growing up male and or perceived as male or assigned male or assigned female at birth. I, I understand the difference in experience. What, what I really would love to better understand is what's the difference in perception of the world and feeling about the world as a woman that has given you, I suspect, different and I also suspect better insights as to what the world really is. Not my most articulate question, but I'd, I would appreciate your response. I'd love to know more about this. I think that that is a very interesting question. Um, I would say um, there's no way for me to kind of look at the world without actually looking at all of the various parts of my experience. So I'm not just a woman, of course. There's my transness. There's my queerness, there's my blackness, my southernness. And what I would say my general worldview is, is that we live in a society where there are systems of oppression, just period. And there are many folks who don't want to acknowledge that, maybe depending on the amount of power and privilege and platforming they have in society. But it is necessary for us to be able to talk about these systems, including white supremacy, um, the patriarchy, uh, cis-sexism, ableism, and on and on. Um, I think what I'm encouraged by is that people are more curious to understand different experiences now, and especially younger folks are more 
outspoken. I mean, we see it every day. We have students in high school and younger who are doing walkouts um, in line with their values around so many different political issues in this time and more. So I'm encouraged about our trajectory towards progress. Um, I don't know that that gets to exactly what you're saying. I, I'm, I don't know anything else other than this experience. So I, I you know, it's, it's, it's all been about curiosity for me and how we can make the world a bit easier for the next folks. Okay, l- let me let me uh, just spend another minute on this, if, if you don't mind. Here, here's what what I'm what I'm really trying to get to. Um, so I'm a straight old white guy. Okay, you're a, a young trans black woman. What I want to know mm-hmm. is. We look at a scene, we go out into the same street the same day, the same time when we look at something. Um, your perception of what we're seeing and my perception of what I'm seeing are probably very different. And what I'm interested in in particular is it, how much of that difference or what can be ascribed to gender. How much of that difference can be ascribed to gender? That is an interesting question. Um, I mean, the, I think the perception piece is, is interesting, right? Because I, you know, I think just because we share different parts of our identities, that doesn't always confer a, a certain type of perception, right? Um, but I, I, I think what I would assume, and maybe you can verify this, is when I think about um, my experience I probably have a heightened sense of when I'm being othered or felt to or being discriminated against or maybe the threat of violence that I feel walking down the street is is probably higher than maybe the threat of violence that you feel Um, just based on, of course, what we know in the society about what folks on the margins experience. but I would also imagine that maybe it, it could be that you feel um, more beholden to a lot of scripts in society because they fit you, right? Or they are easier for you to navigate through than maybe someone like me who uh, often has shredded up a lot of scripts throughout my life. But again, this is conjecture because I don't know your experience. I can't fully articulate your experience, I can really only articulate my experience of certain systems of oppression. And maybe you can affirm whether you see those things or be curious enough to figure out, okay, well, again, what, what is this difference between our perceptions? Um, you, you, that's a big question. <laughs> it, 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 it is. I'm going to uh, hear let me, let me, one more follow-up on it, if I might, and then I want to ask you about uh, this process of writing for you. Uh, sure. It, it is, to me, uh, I think really fascinating to know that what I'm seeing with my eyes and what you're seeing with your, your eyes, what you feel and what I feel can be different based on gender. It's just gender makes a difference. And I don't know if there's a way that you can encapsulate for us what that difference is, but I'm asking, can you? Well, I, and I guess 
my point. You know, it's 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 impossible for me to disentangle just my gender. It's all of it. You know, so it's not just my gender, but it's probably my blackness also and everything else that has led me to have maybe a different vantage point than you do on any given thing. Um, yeah, I, 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 so that, I don't know that we have time to, to, uh, to figure that out. Maybe we'll have a follow-up conversation one day. <laughs> yeah, I would like to do that. Let, let me ask. Let me ask you this. I, I, it's a question that I pose to uh, uh, persons who have written memoirs, uh, nonfiction authors, uh, quite a bit, and novelists as well. Uh, and it goes back to something I read years ago with a small book called "Writing on Paper," and it makes the point that writing is not writing down what you know. Writing is a process of figuring out what you know. And I'm wondering whether mm-hmm. in writing this memoir, you came to understandings or uh, revelations uh, or appreciations that you didn't have before you sat down and put pen to paper or uh, fingers on the keyboard. Absolutely. Um, I, I really had to, of course, go through the grueling process of reliving certain difficult moments in my life from coming out as gay at a young age to my father, who was not thrilled, to his passing away just a few years after that. And yeah, let me on. point out, that was a really dramatic part of this memoir, how your father reacted. I won't, I won't spoil it for our listeners who are about to read your book, but that was very, very powerful. But sorry, I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, you're fine. It, it was a powerful moment and a pivotal moment. Um, But I I think in reliving those moments, um, you know, one of the things that I've had to articulate for folks is that there aren't any heroes and villains in in my books. There are people who have evolved. um, And that's a beautiful thing. And so I think one of the things I've taken away from this process is the necessity of giving grace to myself and to other folks. Um, we're, of course, living in, in a world that often doesn't give us the tools to understand difference, right? That's why you do, I, I imagine, a big part of why you do the work that you do, right? That you comb through people's lived experiences and you interrogate and have these insightful questions. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the grace piece has been huge for me. Um, and, and I guess maybe to circle back to the differences of experience and perception around gender, you know, I, I think that we'll have maybe have to come back to that. But what I hope we can move forward to in this society is understanding that we need to free up everyone from these restrictive notions of gender. So it's not just trans people or non-binary people or gay or queer people. It's cis and straight people as well. You know, I think about men and boys across the board who are told they can't have certain emotions. Otherwise, they're less of a man or less masculine or can't have certain interests. I think about the girls and women who are told they can't have certain interests or be bold, brave, confident leaders, right, without betraying these kind of archaic notions of femininity. And then, of course, the queer, trans, and non-binary folks who are dealing with some mixture of all of that. So we all need to shatter some of these expectations and, of course, take some risks to bloom. 
We have been speaking with Raquel Willis. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop on Thursday at 7 o'clock for book reading, a signing, a Q&A, a discussion, which I am sure is going to be fascinating. Her new book is The Risk It Takes to Bloom, and I'd like to return as we conclude with the words from the beginning of the book, that short poem that Raquel Willis recited for us at the beginning of our talking today. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your book. We really are so thrilled that you'll be coming and joining us here in the Valley. I hope you have a great reading at the Odyssey tomorrow evening, Thursday at 7 o'clock. Raquel Wills, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor. Thank you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa has filed a bill that aims to reduce the likelihood of suicide deaths by firearms. The bill would create a voluntary do-not-sell list for people to add themselves to in case they're afraid for their own lives and mental health. Sabadosa testified in favor of the bill before the Joint Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security yesterday. Suicide prevention has to be at the forefront, right? It is one of the most common ways people commit suicide. And so I'm hoping that the committee will take this into consideration as um, maybe one of the tools that we could have in our toolbox to help reduce suicide in the Commonwealth. The bill would create a list kept by the state and not local police chiefs who typically have the power to revoke gun owners' licenses to carry to preserve the caller's anonymity. Sebadosa says the bill is modeled after successful legislation passed in more southern states like Alabama. A plan to convert the former Econo Lodge in Hadley into affordable housing is moving forward again after a state panel overturned the Hadley Zoning Board of Appeals decision that rejected the plan. Valley CDC will now get the permit, which allows them to apply for necessary funding for the $13 million project. If funding is secured, construction is still a year or two away from starting. Applications are now being accepted for the Massachusetts Home Energy Assistance Program. Eligibility for the program is based on household size, income, and other factors. The application is free and may be submitted online or in person at local agencies. The state is warning applicants to beware of scams where people are charging an application fee to submit your application. Breezy mix of sun and clouds today continued chilly, a high of 34 to 38. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 14 to 20. For Thursday, mostly sunny, a high of 42 to 46. Could be a few showers to end the day on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Where is your pain? In your knees? Hips? Your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. 
put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than 1,000 members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. This is Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. Lawrence, thank you for being with us. Good morning, sir. <laughs> okay, what you got for us today? Oh, I got something that's just perfect for three old white men to talk about. And we should note that one reason that Larry is with us, particularly at this time, is because we have films that are going to be appraised, evaluated, and judged in the not-too-distant future, yes? Yes, I'm a member of the American, uh, I will just make it called the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to vote for best documentary, best short documentary, and best feature film, and eventually get to vote on all the nominees. It's a huge responsibility, I tell you. And I appreciate you taking time off from watching movies to come talk to us. Okay. Yeah, I barely have a minute here to do this. But <laughs> okay, great. So let's get to it. Please. So I just watched a film that I think is a real contender. It's called Stamped from the Beginning, and it's based on the book of the same name by Ibram X. Kendi, which was released in 2016 and then followed up with a book that you probably heard of, How to Be an Anti-Racist. This film, directed by Roger Ross Williams, who is a great and dynamic film director, both features and documentaries, is a survey film, a history of racism in America, particularly anti-black racism, from the day white people step off the boat right up until today. And this is an exciting and difficult film to make. I think we should go to a clip, if we're ready for it, just to give you a sense of the dynamism of this film. The history of racism in this country, we're really thinking of the history of power. There is a myth about the founding of this country. People want to erase American history as it truly was. Racist ideas of African people as beastly worthy of enslavement started circulating. And it worked. What happens when we tell these... I wish you could see this trailer, and you can just by going to YouTube, look for a stamp from the beginning. The visuals are stunning. Now, this is not a landscape film. It's not beautiful images of, of the mountains of America. These are mostly animations mixed with rotoscoping. Rotoscoping is when you take real people and you create animations from those images. 
what they do that's different here is they really they put live actors reenacting scenes within animation all around them. It is a great technique. Brings it alive in a way that you've never seen before. Explain that a little bit more to, so we can... I, I'd okay, like so to be able to visualize this. There's, there's uh, been a lot of uh, films. Uh, Linkletter did this where it's all cartoon, but the cartoons are based on actual images. It's an old tech. It's one of the earliest techniques of, of animation where you take a photograph and then you color that photograph and then you make cells, C-E-L-S, animation cells and you make it move. So it's hyper-realistic, but it is still cartoon-like at the same time. That's called rotoscoping. Is this new? No, it's not new at all. But what the filmmakers have done here is they've combined several animation techniques in one frame. And I can give you an example. They tell the story of Ida B. Wells, who is a black journalist, a woman who, starting in the 1890s, starts documenting lynchings into the thousands of them. And she puts herself in dangerous positions to go to where the lynchings has happened. And she, as a reporter, a black woman in the South reporting on lynchings, uh, it's very dangerous work. And this is at a time when the press has not been paying attention. She makes the, the national press, not just the black press, pay attention. I came across Ida B. Wells while researching uh, the Niagara Movement film about the battle between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. It was her information that led Du Bois to be so adamant that we could not uh, use uh, Booker T. Washington's accommodationist philosophy to make any kind of progress. Well, Larry Hart, if I could ask, why is animation of the sort that you just described an effective way to tell this well, story. Well, it's two, it's two things. One is, there's not a lot of images from this period, right? There's no motion picture images uh, from up, up, in, up until the 1920s or so. There's very few motion picture images. And still photos go back to the well, 1800s. Invented around 1839, but they really not, you know, Civil War era is when you start seeing the photographs that we recognize as photographs. Um, but they were not easy for use, to use. Uh, people didn't have Kodak cameras really in, until the 1920s. Right, but we're, if we're going to do reenactment in order to make the film and to depict what was going on, why would we colorize it and animate Because that? Because people are used to seeing exciting, moving images. And if you're going to do a survey film, a history film that covers 300 years, you damn well better make it exciting and interesting because you're not going to hold people's attention. And this film, right from the first second, is just pounding. And I have to say something about the music in this film. It is the best documentary score I have ever heard, bar none. It, it, it is so, not only timed perfectly to the frame, but it has the emotion and the rhythm in being in a creative, new way. It is not expected. It's not as if they're playing Scott Joplin every time you're in the, you know, in the 1890s and 1910, which is like... You know, something you should never, ever do. Filmmakers out there do never, never use Scott Chaplin and Maple Leaf Rag in that, for that time period because it is so trite. There's no trite music in here. It is appropriate but rhythmic and pounding and spirited. And it moves along the interviews with all, it's all except for Ibram Kendi. Everybody in this film is a woman. They are all female historians. It is uh, honorary... Fanon uh, Jeffers, uh, who you might know her work, uh, Elizabeth Hinton, Angela Davis, and on and on. And they tell the stories 
I mentioned Ida B. Wells, but also Phyllis Wheatley. Do you know the story of Phyllis Wheatley? Phyllis? I don't. I will tell you the story of Phyllis Wheatley very briefly. Phyllis Wheatley was a slave brought to Boston as a young girl. Oh, yes, I know this. Story. And has a sympathetic family that, she's, that owns her. And she is well-educated, and she becomes a poet. And the story they tell in this film is that the elite white men of Boston are so upset that this woman has published that they bring her to trial to, to, she, to prove to them that she actually wrote the material because how could a young black girl have the, the sentience, have the brain to publish this beautiful poetry? You can see the actual first books that she wrote at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester. Uh, and you could see her handwriting uh, this is a, ph a, ph a phenomenal story, and she gave hope. She gave hope to the African-American community in the United States in the 1770s that there was some way for the, anti for the abolitionists to succeed. Larry Hutt, how do people get their hands on Stamp this from is the a, beginning? This is a Netflix film. I waited till the very end of the film to see if there were any other sponsors. <laughs> Netflix paid for this film. Kendi is a big is a big star. I, I know if you've noticed lately, there was some controversy about the uh, center that he established at Boston University. Uh, really, the controversy had to do with so much money came in so fast that they couldn't handle it. Uh, right, there was controversy about uh, uh, how the money was spent, how quickly it was spent, what it was spent for. Not not any claims of uh, right, right, but uh, that's an indication. It's an indication of how popular. How popular he is. I'd like to ask you this, Larry. Hart. I want you to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, and that is you have a film of how long is it, more or less? It's an hour and a half. Okay, an hour and a half film that is a hit, a, a review of history, um, and you say it's fascinating. It grabs you at the beginning and it never lets you go. In order for a film to do that, usually there is a person you really care about or an event you want to understand. There is some mystery that will be unraveled. What is it about this film that grabs the viewer and won't well, let first, them the go? Well, the opening starts with a question, what's wrong with black people? A provocative question, right? And it ends with the idea that people think about what they're going to lose in an anti-racist society, not what there is to gain. Okay, so it's bracketed by this idea. And then when you have a survey film, which has lots and lots of stories over 300, 400 years, the only way to hold people's attention is to have narratives within that. So they're constantly selling, telling you stories that have beginning, middles, and ends, and then making the connections. That's the trick. You can't just say this happened, this happened, this happened. You gotta make each thing that happened into a narrative, and they do it brilliantly. And the Kendi, who is the, the one man in the film, but it, he has to be there because it's his book, right? He's the one who created this idea of telling the story. Of anti-racism? Anti it's called, no, the Stamped no, from, the beginning, from the Beginning. Uh, is, it's a, a thick book, a, a tome. Uh, it's, this is not How to Be an Anti-Racist, okay. which is his follow-up book. Um, but he is, the, he is the glue that holds the film together. And everybody in the film is so strong, so powerful in their, in their articulation of what these issues are that you stay with them. You, you want to hear more, which is, which is and it, it's because the editing is so good <coughs> that this is, this is a professional film all the way through. It has been criticized for being shallow, 
I don't like the use of that word here. Um, shallow only in that you can't go into depths in every single story in an hour and a half. But this is a great introduction and a counter to the people who believe that we should not teach critical race theory at any level, <laughs> let alone in the schools. And you un I know what the critical race theory is an academic concept that never made it into the high schools in the first place. But this, this film, I recommend this film for every teacher. If you can't show it in your school, then show it in an after-school program. Uh, this is a great introduction to the ideas of how America became a racist society and also some suggestions about what we can do about it. Larry Hott, we're going to review another film, which is? Which is The League, about the history of black baseball in America. Which we'll do right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Every child has a spark that's waiting to be ignited, that deserves to be ignited. At the Bement School, we know each student's story. We know them as individuals. Kids at Bement understand that academic success is an important part of who they are. Not the only part, but an important part. Their teachers guide them on that quest, individually and as a group, fostering a sense of responsibility for learning. The Bement School serves students in kindergarten through ninth grade. It's a close-knit community of students from Western Mass, from other parts of the country, and other parts of the world. Forming bonds with students whose households and cultures are different gives them a broad perspective on the world, even at this young age. As much as academic success is important at Bement, so too is how students learn to live Bement's core values, compassion, integrity, resilience, and respect at school and in their communities. Take a closer look at Bement. Contact me, Kim Lachlan, Director of Admission, or visit our website, bement.org. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker and voter at the Oscars, one Larry Hott, who has a recommendation for another film for you to watch. Larry, well, feel free to influence my vote. <laughs> I accept gifts of all kinds. <laughs> but we were just talking about Stamp from the Beginning, the uh, Ibram X. Kendi film based on his book. The subtitle of that book was The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Uh, and one of those ideas is separating black ballplayers from white ballplayers. And the film The League, uh, which was in theaters recently, played at the Amherst Cinema, is now on Amazon Prime and many, many other platforms. as a wonderful survey history of black baseball in America. 
and I say survey, it, it's difficult just like the other film we talked about because it covers a great swath of, of time, about from the 1880s or so up until the end of the 40s. Uh, the history of black baseball is not what I thought it was going to be. This is almost, in a way, a business history. It looks at what the money was behind it and how people decided they were going to try to make a living off of black baseball because they could not get the players into the white leagues. Um, that, let's hear a clip from this film. You get a sense of what it's like. It was so popular that black churches would move their service time up an hour so fans could go to the game. If you know anything about the black church, you'll mess with service time. There were African-American professional ball players in the 19th century. But segregation starts to tighten its hold. Well, what do you do? We can do this on our own. A few entrepreneurs see that a black club can be a successful business. Rube Foster, light years ahead of his time. Effa Manley. The first lady of black baseball. Negro League players made the game more up-tempo. So you heard the word entrepreneurs in there. That's key here because they have to figure out how to survive, and they do. And that they, how to survive, is the, we're talking about owners of the clubs in the, in, the, right. in the Negro Leagues. Right, and there's a, a woman, Effa Manley, that they spend a lot of time with uh, in the film. The film is, uses a technique. They take the memoir of a black umpire who was a, the ref for games for 50, 60 years. So he, he experienced all of it, and he's a, and he's a good writer, and they have a great voice do his readings. So that's one, you asked me earlier, you know, how you tie these kind of films together. So here they had a memoir of one person. Uh, it's a bit of his biography, and that ties it together. Uh, one of the things I didn't know about, I didn't realize that there were different Negro leagues. We always talk about the Negro League. There were different Negro leagues, the Negro National League, the Eastern Colored League, and they would have their own World Series. The whole thing basically is leading us up to Jackie Robinson. No, no surprise. But the idea that Jackie Robinson was the death knell for the black leagues is interesting. And what was lost? It was not just Jackie Robinson. It was also all of the other black ball right. players who followed him and decimated the black almost overnight. Almost overnight. Okay, so we think of this as this an unalloyed good, you know? This is great. Uh, end of discrimination in white baseball, and we bring in black ball players and then Hispanic ball players, and it's all kumbaya in the major leagues. But the result is that lots of black players are now not playing because it's not a league for them. The black owners have lost their businesses, and you see this happening. And the black owners are never compensated at all for the players that the white owners ripped off exactly, and brought into the... Exactly. Or if they are the, compensated, it's minuscule, you know, in a couple of thousands as opposed to millions of dollars for a player. So this is a, a film that holds your attention, not because you don't know this material. I mean, you, you, a lot of people have heard the outline of it, but it's told in a compelling way with actually kind of fun reenactments where they find some wonderful black ball players put them in uniforms, and have, and have them play and perform pretty much acrobatics on the field in order to fill in, you know, the inter interstitial moments in the, in the film. Uh, I wanted to say, say one, more, one more thing about this. 
There's a corollary, corollary to Brown versus Board of Education here, which comes in 1954. Jackie Robinson, 1947, comes into, into the Dodgers. Is that the black schools, particularly in places like Washington, D.C., that had a major, large middle class, they suffer a little bit, or maybe a lot, from integration because then they do not control their own schools. And this is an issue that comes up in some of the more recent films about black history in America, about the things that didn't go well because of integration. And that's a whole other story. Tell us the title of this film again and it's where we can see it. simply The League, and it's on every platform. I looked it up this morning, but Amazon Prime, Hulu, anywhere on the web you can find it. And the thing that most surprised you that you learned perhaps that you didn't know, even though you know this material? I didn't realize how much of a business it was and how important it was to the black community. Uh, it was worth millions and millions of dollars. And we just, we just tend to think of it as discrimination, but it was much more than that. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hott. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. WHMP North WHMP Welcome to the show. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman, and we have with us one political consultant extraordinaire, Josh Silver. So thrilled to have him today because we want his views on what happened yesterday, a major announcement, I think, in the Republican race for president. Buzz? Well, first of all, Ohio Silver, that's just a great lead for you, John. I was actually, on the contrary, wondering if Dan could, if that's grounds for firing him for playing that <laughs> over and over again. Could be. No, he gets a medal. Yeah, if, we get, if we get a song that's Hi-Ho Josh, we'll, do, we'll use that one. So... Josh, what's the big news coming out of the, uh, on the from the Republicans? Right, well, side? so Bill's all worked up because the the Koch brothers are are behind uh, Nikki Haley uh, as of this today, like yesterday, and as uh, opposed to uh, Ron DeSantis, <coughs> who they supported for governor. The Ron Ron DeSantis, yes, and um, you know she's been surging in the polls. She actually is the one Republican candidate who has come off as like kind of intelligent and articulate in many ways, even though she still continues to uh, avoid saying anything critical of Mr. Trump, which we all know why, because of the base. But 
I, I think it's important that we sort of have a more big picture look at this because, you know, Bill sent me a, an email saying prepping for today's show saying like, I just, you, why don't you recap your, you want to recap your question? Sure. It has been said by political pundits for months and months now that what the Republican Party wants, the, at least the rational part of it, wants is an alternative to Donald Trump. And if you could just clear out the field so there was one clear alternative that people could get behind, that is Republicans could get behind, then Trump could be defeated. And the Republican candidates are falling or have fallen, and we're down to a few. There's still a uh, former governor of New Jersey running as the anti-Trump. But then there's Nikki Haley, and she seems to be able to consolidate all of these other Republican candidates who have uh, dropped out the, their support, she seems to be able to consolidate, which leads me to believe that maybe there, in fact, is a opportunity to defeat Donald Trump in the Republican primary. Wrong. So, no. I mean, it, it's... T tell me what you really think, Josh. Yeah, Don't hold yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. No, Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. That's the way it is. 63% of Republican likely voters continue to say they are going to the vote Koch for brothers are billionaires they can spend whatever they want well you know that that doesn't matter like it doesn't money provides a massive leg up but and and the Koch brothers do have a grassroots network and they they do have boots on the ground and that is so it's more than just money it's also people that are going to work for nikki Haley as a result of this but at the end of the day you cannot surpass this kind of polling advantage Barring something seismic, like Trump has a heart attack or, you know, like something, the indictment's not going to, or a conviction's not going to do it. There's all evidence shows that he's in all likelihood, if you're the odds makers would say Trump is going to be convicted sometime around the Republican convention, odds are. Um, and, and so we're looking at a situation where 63% of likely voters on the Republican side are going to vote for him anyway. He's leading by 20, 30, 40 points across the board. There's no way, Bill. So, But Josh, but Josh I, I'm constantly, whenever we have these conversations, um, you put a whole lot of stock in what the, what the polls say a year before the election. And the, despite the fact that polls are so often proven to be wrong mm -hmm. and inaccurate, I understand these are huge leads, but yeah. really. But it's, it's six and a half weeks till it, the primary. Is that true? Well, January, yeah. 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 So it is, it, it's, it's, oh, I it's, guess the first, I guess yeah. we got the Iowa caucus. First uh, yeah. So January. when you're talking about the Biden Trump had head to head, your question stands. But when we're talking about the Republican primary, it's around the corner. So in some states, but the bottom line is, and remember the Democrats have on their side have changed their dates to, to benefit Biden. But on the Republican side, I think it's important to take a step back. And, and one of the things that bill you left out was you dude, your typical, head scratch, which is why you have the receding hairline, because <laughs> politics have caused you to scratch your own head so much uh, in dismay. But, you know, you said, how is it possible that all these voters are going to vote for Trump, even though Trump is vote is like actively working against their economic interests? That was, one, that was one of my questions. That was one of your, yeah, you always ask a few too many, but that was one. And, and one thing you have to understand is that this is a good clip from a CNN piece that was talking about why, how is it that the, the Republicans, or rather Trump, enjoys so much support. Um, but the inclination, and this is quoting, but the inclination of so many Republican voters to dismiss all of the charges accumulated against Trump 
reflects something much more fundamental. The hardening tendency of conservatives to believe that they are the real victims of bias in a society irreversibly growing more racially and culturally diverse. The fact is, is that the heart of Trump's base is largely white, male, less educated, poorer Americans, middle-class Americans who feel they are the victim and they are losing their country to blacks and browns and Jews and transgender people and it's being taken from them and they are victims. That is the number. And when you talk anecdotally, when I talk to my plumber, to my carpenter who love Trump, it's all he, the idea that Trump is a grenade that is blowing up a broken system. So then that falls in the face of you saying, Bill, well, but, but people are spending more money now than they have been in years. The economy... By that its- was the report yesterday from the... Uh, I- Forget the Commerce Department, but it was the report on what happened over Thanksgiving weekend and Black Friday. Spending was a lot more than what the economists had predicted. They actually released results today, and uh, they released results and said that it was the economy grew at 5.1%. Yeah. So, but yet on the other hand, the problem that we're seeing is that the American this is a mistake that a lot of Democrats make, Bill, and a lot of liberals make it. All due respect, but talk about the buy, the economy's doing great. You don't want to go back to my heroin again? You're on a roll here this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, but no, but here's the thing is that the economy is doing well in comparison to the way that it was in free fall when Trump destroyed it for four years. But if you really back up the tape and look, look at the long, the long game, you have a country that was founded on the foundation of racism you have that did not end until like well into the 1800s you have a country that has always had very strong racist and misogynistic sort of underpinnings for hundreds of years and then you have this unique thing that happens post-world war ii where thanks to progressive deals the new the new deal and progressive policies you have the emergence of a robust middle class in America and people were actually living the American dream at scale and it was unprecedented and there was massive shared wealth for the middle of the country and it was within this context that we saw so many positive things occur in the way of women's rights and rights for black and brown people and like progressive important improvements in our society but then Corporate America realizes, and this is what's so important, that nobody, people don't know this. Corporations did not have lobbyists and did not influence politicians in a formal, organized way until the 1970s. Sure, there was a lot of backroom smoke-filled deals, of course, before then. I get it. Um, and there's long history of the robber barons and the, train, the people that own the trains working with the Rockefellers and oil, and I get it. But like, suddenly in the 70s, you have this massive lobbying industrial complex in Washington, D.C., and then increasingly in state houses. And you see the corrupting influence of money in politics really become perverse in a way that had never been seen before and captures both political parties. And that's what people don't realize. See, And so the American people and Trump supporters see that historically both parties sold out to the billionaires and the corporates lobbyists and sold out the middle class and makes life day-to-day harder for working Americans, and that continues today. 
And so even while the economy improves, we are still in a situation where people have less buying power, they have a lower standard of living than they did 10, 20 years ago, by and large. There's poverty is rampant across this country in those districts where Trump is extraordinary, most popular in the rural areas of this country. And it's this deep embedded problem that that you know a progressive Biden administration cannot fix by itself. It's it goes much farther back. That's depressing. That said, you still think Trump is going to be let's just finish up on Nikki Haley. You don't think she has a chance? Koch brothers, millions of dollars behind us? No, no. And we've seen time. I'd like to ask one other question to amplify what Bill just asked, which is assume away Trump, something happens, you know, whether it's his health or conviction or whatever it is that changes his standing in the polls in the short period before the primaries are uh, have run their course. Does the fact that Nikki Haley is a woman impact on whether she gets the nomination for the Republican Party? Yeah, it makes it even less likely. Because we, we, Hillary Clinton showed the, the role of misogyny in, in elections. If, if Hillary Clinton were a man, she would have won that race, hands down. But look, look, Bill, I'm looking at, you know, real clear politics. This poll from yesterday, morning consult poll, Republican likely voters for nationally trumps up by 50 points it's trump 54 uh, sorry 64 desantis 14 hilly 10 um let me just see I'll, I'll go down to the okay here's an emerson poll from four days ago trump's up by 55 trump's got 64 desantis has eight hilly has nine this is national emerson Sorry, there's like been a few anomalous polls that show Hallie Haley with pretty strong support, like in, yeah, maybe even Iowa. Like it, it's conceivable. Why, why did the Koch brothers want to throw their support behind somebody if it's so obvious that she's not because a viable they candidate? absolutely loathe Donald Trump? They have no power like they used to when they controlled the Republican presidents in the past when they kind of ruled the world, and they want that power back, and they've decided. She is the most likely to be able to succeed because let's find she she has been anointed by the Cokes, not because she's exceptional and she is exceptional in comparison to the field, but also because Ron DeSantis is so unexceptional and so lacking charisma and so clearly unfit to be able to run. And again, who they supported for the gubernatorial uh, race in Florida. Yeah. Josh, it, there is a path for Nikki Haley, and it's this that in the Iowa caucuses, which are quite unpredictable, she does better than expected. She comes in maybe with 20% or 25%, and the way that plays out in the national media is unexpectedly strong showing for Nikki Haley. And from Iowa, they go to New Hampshire, where the voters are quite unpredictable, and she does even better there. She only loses by 15 or 20 points, which would have been a landslide against her uh, in another time. But here it gets played as a victory because, look, she was at 8 percent, according to Josh Silver on Talk the Talk just a few months ago. And look what she did in New Hampshire. And then they go to South Carolina where she can win because it's her state. I mean, I I do concede that, you know, Barack Obama was a good example of how this can be very powerful. Barack Obama won Iowa, and that shifted him into this position of being seen as impossible to being possible. 
But I still would argue, Bill, and, and you're right, like, you know, Haley is doing really well in Iowa. I will concede that. 32% of suburban poll respondents in Iowa support Haley against 29% for DeSantis and just 24% for Trump. Trump is not nearly as popular in Iowa as, as he is elsewhere. And yes, South Carolina is going to be probably hers, although he does, Trump does really well in, in South Carolina. But then look at the other states. You, you know, in all the other states, Trump is just trouncing her. And I just don't believe for a minute that the kinds of differences that we're seeing, these 50 point, 55 point, I mean, Bill, these are, these are like Grand Canyon style leads. They're massive. And, and if, if we were talking about a 20, 30 point lead, I'd be like, mm, I don't know, maybe, but, but you can't surmount this. I just, now that said, I don't think you or I have ever been proven to be great political prognosticators. I mean, I'm a pretty good analyst, but I'm not that good at predicting elections. I'll, I'll confess that. But based on everything I'm reading and seeing and hearing, you are, this is wish, Bill Newman wishful thinking. On that wishful note, <laughs> we will be right back. More Political Gold with Josh Silver right after this. I'm so depressed. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Of all the boys. They're hot. Of all the boys, boys. So hot. They're the Hot Sardines, one of New York City's hottest jazz bands, and they are coming to town. About me and Fisty Shane, please let me explain. About me and Fisty Shane means that you're grand. The Hot Sardines Holiday Stomp, Thursday, December 7th at UMass. Swing into the season with the romping, rollicking sounds of the Hot Sardines. Oh, by gosh, by jingle, it's time. For carols and Kris Kringle. The Hot Sardines' lighthearted and lively mix of hot jazz, swing, and stride is irresistible. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Hot Sardines Holiday Stomp, a very merry night at UMass, Thursday, December 7th in Bowker Auditorium. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with uh, political analyst Josh Silver. Josh Silver, 
the President Biden is getting a lot of flack, not only from Republicans, but also from people in his own party about his position with respect to Israel, the October 7th attack by Gaza, and then his support undying of Israel since. So uh, how, what do you think about this? Well, so I, I, I think that it's very clear that if Biden doesn't continue to, because let's, let's understand the last couple of weeks, Biden has made a very assertive move away from just unequivocal and unconditional support for Israel to a much different stance, or particularly over the last week. Let's pause. Yeah, but very, no, not just that's pause. Two-state solution, Palestine, excuse me, Palestine must be able to be united, like the Gaza Strip and the West Bank must be able to be united and work together as a Palestinian state run by the Palestinian Authority, and it must be a parallel society and country living next to and in harmony with Israel. This is bold rhetoric for an American administration, and it is precisely because if Biden does not do that, he is going to lose the 24 election. And how is he going to lose it? He's going to lose it because all the young people, the progressives, he are going to bleed away because they're not going to stay. They're going to stay home. They're going to be disgusted because they don't share the unequivocal support of Israel that Biden and the political class in Washington and the donor class that funds the Democratic Party does. That's pretty powerful uh, analysis. I mean, the, the, Bill, do you think that Biden's uh, position is one that puts him in jeopardy or that secures his comfort zone? I think Biden did what exactly what the Joe Biden who's been in Washington for 40 years would be expected would be expected to do in this situation. I also think he has been undermined by this right-wing administration and government in Israel. Uh he should be I think it should have been uh publicly I'm sh- pretty sure he was privately. Publicly he should have been more uh critical I think of Netanyahu, uh, who he can't like, yeah. Uh, but to come out initially and say the slaughter of innocent Israelis by Hamas was completely unacceptable. I think that was right, and I think getting, you know, modifying his position some is also right because the, what Israel has done is taken this enormous sympathy for Israel for this horrifying attack by Hamas on innocent civilians. And managed to dissipate it all and create an entire worldwide movement and fervor in favor of Palestine. Well, that's because it's called overreaction. I think we all do it in our marriages from time to time, right? It's like you you cannot have something like what happened in Israel and then you obliterate the entire Gaza Strip and take with it thousands and thousands of of babies and children. Like you cannot do that. And that has been very controversial because I'll, t- I'll tell you, for me, amongst my progressive friends, I have many who push back and say, no, it was so egregious what Hamas did. Any response is appropriate. And it's not. It actually, Israel overreacted and they destroyed too much infrastructure. They killed too many people. And it was ethically and morally wrong. And not enough people on the left are acknowledging that and saying it. And there is a way to say that without vilifying Israel as something that should not exist, 
and without seeing everything as an absolute, because that's the problem. And it's, without ignoring October 7th. Yes. You, yeah. I mean, it's just like you don't have to just be blind, like full bore one side or the other. There is a middle. And the middle is we Israel went too far. The United States went too far in its support of this unconditional initial response. And that is why that happened, Bill. Do you think, Josh, that the long-term implications for Biden are harmful to Biden? Absolutely, because he's already in the—he's doing terribly with Latinos and blacks. The only thing that's been hopeful for him is, like, he is generally holding progressive white voters. Now— he starts lose, bleeding all his young progressive white voters over Israel. You start to do the math. I mean, we're talking about... Uh, well, well to- here is where I would just like to interrupt. Here's the statistics behind this. Young, a lot of young people don't vote in proportions. And this has been confirmed in a lot of literature. Young people oftentimes don't show up to vote. We want to say they do, but all voting is usually skewed very much so by those who are much older. And I would add, in my view... I think by the time the election runs around, it's it's going to be in people's minds. No, people are going to vote pocketbook and cultural issues like they've done before. That's just my view. Well, I'd just like to add to your opinion that I think that the fear for the, for, for Democrats is that people don't vote, yeah. that their supporters exactly. don't come out. Exactly. And I would say, Dan, the reason why I, I, Bring I, it. I don't agree Bring with it. you Go is, ahead. That's is okay. that when you look at the fact that today Biden's actually down he's up one he's losing he's up one under 35 okay, okay but he's losing in generally in the swing states that matter against trump in matchups today it's a simple fact that biden cannot afford to lose any more votes and he's got like you know what is it i think 20 percent of blacks are starting to are, are yeah, now 25 25 percent are saying they're favoring trump you got close, close. to 50 percent of latinos it's a simple math he cannot lose more people so you cannot a strategist would tell you and i'm telling you I agree. you cannot say well oh, young people matters. don't tend to show up so it doesn't matter it matters i, and that's, I know i just yeah. think like by the time the election comes around i don't know if foreign policy will so i mean we just don't know a year out what will be on right, the but remember, of people's minds, but right but, now the two respective sides the republicans the Democrats are are arming themselves with weaponry. Right now, the Democrats have a weapon that's new, which is that Trump has made an indication that he might repeal Obamacare, which I think 40 some odd million Americans use and like, including a lot of Republicans. So they the Democrats now have that weapon and they will use it through the whole cycle. Israel is a weapon that the GOP has now kind of gathered and is going to use strategically throughout the whole year. So yes, while it's going to diminish significantly, massively even, it's again, Biden can't afford to lose votes. My final question to you, Josh Silver, is the disagreement you're having with Dan Torres really because he played high silver to introduce your, your segment? That's it. How did you know? God. <laughs> okay, so I have a final question for you, Josh Silver. <laughs> They're related. How does Biden get out of this, and how does Dan get out of this? Yeah. So the the Biden one's easy. The Dan one's not. Biden it just continues what he's doing. Bi- Biden and and Blinken, his Secretary of State, has done, I think, politically a really good job in the past week of pivoting out of the unequivocal support and being much more hard nosed with Israel. Now the problem is, the Israeli government is so hard right and so kind of going to do what they're going to do. The, the United States care. saying you should do this or that doesn't mean they will. And they are likely going to resume bombing of, of Gaza, and it's going to create yet more political problems for the Biden administration. There is likely a serious 
kind of conversation, very intense happening right now between the West and Israel to prevent Israel from doing some bombing again. And that, so I, I, I'm hopeful. That, from doing in the South what they've done yes, in the North. Yes, obliterating more of Gaza. And right, it's got to stop. Whether Netanyahu will use political smarts and acumen is to be seen. As for Dan... I know he's going to do the song again. Yeah, uh, loud and emphatic, yeah, please. And, and just let's just all cover our ears and we'll call it a day. And, uh, I ho, Silver. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa has filed a bill that aims to reduce the likelihood of suicide deaths by firearms. The bill would create a voluntary do-not-sell list for people to add themselves to in case they're afraid for their own lives and mental health. Sabadosa testified in favor of the bill before the Joint Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security yesterday. Suicide prevention has to be at the forefront, right? It is one of the most common ways people commit suicide. And so I'm hoping that the committee will take this into consideration as um, maybe one of the tools that we could have in our toolbox to help reduce suicide in the Commonwealth. The bill would create a list kept by the state and not local police chiefs who typically have the power to revoke gun owners' licenses to carry to preserve the caller's anonymity. Sebadosa says the bill is modeled after successful legislation passed in more southern states like Alabama. A plan to convert the former Econo Lodge in Hadley into affordable housing is moving forward again after a state panel overturned the Hadley Zoning Board of Appeals decision that rejected the plan. Valley CDC will now get the permit, which allows them to apply for necessary funding for the $13 million project. If funding is secured, construction is still a year or two away from starting. Applications are now being accepted for the Massachusetts Home Energy Assistance Program. Eligibility for the program is based on household size, income, and other factors. The application is free and may be submitted online or in person at local agencies. The state is warning applicants to beware of scams where people are charging an application fee to submit your application. Breezy mix of sun and clouds today continued chilly, a high of 34 to 38. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 14 to 20. For Thursday, mostly sunny, a high of 42 to 46. Could be a few showers to end the day on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Where is your pain? In your knees, hips, your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program.
WHMP. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families' bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We have in the studio uh, a guest who is literally a national champion, Stacey Bourbeau of Orange, recently won the 2023 Women's U.S. Amateur Pool Championship, and she made history in doing so. She bested this field of top amateur pool players from across North America. 700 women uh, competed for this. 44 qualified for the championship rounds. And not only did Stacy Borbeau win this year, but she has been the champion back-to-back. Unbelievable. You are a champion. We have a champion in the station. Thank you. So, Stacy Borbeau, how does it feel to have won two years in a row? It was... The first time that I've ever gotten emotional over a win, and I've been playing pool for about 30 years. Uh, I've had a few wins. I, this was the third time I've won this, but the back-to-back um, started in 22, and the first time I won was in 2015. How'd you get interested in pool in the first place? By accident. <laughs> my dad used to take my best friend and I to a private club um, where they had a pool table every Sunday night. Where? In Gill, actually. Okay. In the well-known for its pool prowess town of Gill. No. <laughs> well, I actually learned to play in Turner's Falls, right near, right near. Um, I was uh, noticed by a man who owned a, a what was a dry pool room, so underage were allowed in there. I was about 15 when I walked in there, um, and he saw something and kind of asked me, asked if he could teach me to play. He wanted to develop what he saw. What do you think he saw, Stacy Borbo? Uh, I was a shot maker without any having been taught anything. Um, he, more than technical, he taught me how to think about the game. As you mentioned to me before about blocking pockets and such. I, I just want to, <laughs> what Stacy's alluding to, I watched her final uh, against Crystal Deppelsmaker. Am I pronouncing that? Deppelsmaker. Deppelsmaker, who herself is a pretty darn good pool player. And uh, what I saw was on two occasions, Stacy, you were sort of, you didn't have a great shot, but you managed to block the pocket that she would have been going for, which I thought was just, wow. And when, when, at, when people ask me advice on how to play, I tell them I can't show them how to do it. I can tell them, I advise that they try to think, how can I win the game? It's not always what shot can I make, it's how can I win the game. The other thing that I'm always fascinated by, but you know, being one of those people who tried to be a pool player but um, well, just couldn't put it together, I, I can see angles, okay, but what you do is you worry about what the cue ball does after it strikes the ball you're trying to sink. That is not an easy thing to do. Oftentimes I'm looking at the eight ball right off the break, um, trying to figure out where, if it has a pocket to go in, what I need to do to make 
all of the balls go in <coughs> just before I even start. As a champion, I mean, does your whole is your whole body involved? Do you trying? Your legs have to be a foundation for you. Your your hand and the way you bridge that cue stick. It just seems like a total body experience. Steady is key. Um, in this case, in the first three games of that final that you watched, I was really hoping the cameras wouldn't catch how bad I was shaking. <laughs> um, somehow, the, I was still making balls and succeeding in what I was trying to do. And as I got a lead um, and confidence as I went along, I calmed way down and fell into the groove that you can only hope happens in that situation. Bill Newman, I know you're a pool player. No, I wouldn't say that. I, I do want to ask, though, how much and how many years have you practiced? How do you become a pool pool shark? Is that is that okay? Pool phenom? What what what's the I proper think we terminology? Like professional. <laughs> professional. Okay. But this is the amateur championship <laughs> yes. that you won. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which actually puts me um, in position to go to two more pro events, which I haven't played in in about seven years. So. So um, how much of your how much of your life did you spend with a pool cue and at a table? As a teenager, yes. from about fifteen to nineteen years old, I did put in my time. Whereas now I have a full time job and a career, I don't have the time to practice like I should. But I was probably playing anywhere from between four and ten hours a day every day when I was for about four years as a teenager. Here in Western Mass. Yep, at the it was a room named County Billiards in Turner's Falls. <laughs> Uh, and the owner's name was Al Holmes, and he is the one that noticed me and asked to be able to mentor me, so to speak. Stacey Bourbeau, you're a woman. Isn't it kind of a man's world in these local pool halls? It was tough, but it made me have very thick skin. What do you mean by that? I appreciated, I mean, I was able to survive, um, and that's why a lot of women don't even play pool. For, and it was pointed out to me, a lot of girls at that age have self-consciousness or self-esteem issues. They don't want to be bending over the table when there's lots of guys around. For some reason, that never occurred to be an issue to me. But really? No sexism in pool? <laughs> oh, there absolutely is. Oh, okay. Uh, I've, and that's well, I mean, part, not okay, but tell us about it. I really believe that's part of what makes me successful is I, I like to overcome, and pr I have to prove myself constantly. Right. So there are, there are men who, who assume that they're going to be better players than the, than the girl who's sitting... Uh, Much more so 30 years ago than now, but yes, it still happens. Um, so as a result of winning, I should just say the American Pool Players Association sponsors and puts on uh, this yep. uh, event, the U.S. Amateur Pool Championship, um, for men and for women. You get this fairly magnificent trophy. You get this jacket. They pay for travel and lodging, and mm -hmm. you're entered into the next year's pro billiard event do you mm -hmm. intend to go pro i there it's a whole other level and it's a level that would probably require me quitting my job <laughs> to go pro and i mean really that's the definition of being a professional anyway is that you're making your living doing that um i would need to quit and put in a year's worth of practice every single day probably to get to that level does that mean no <laughs> i love competing i just don't see I, I don't think it's a realistic attainable goal right now can you get to a bit of how you play? Let's say you have the break. Are you trying to uh, put certain balls uh, in the pocket? How does the game for you start? It really depends on which game we're talking about. Um, the well, let's assume eight ball, which you played. In eight ball, the, the goal is to make a ball. 
um, and then work through the problems. It's a puzzle and there's a pattern to it. Uh, each table's different, obviously. And as I said earlier, you have to look right to the end, right from the break. So if you make a ball, you, you go right to looking at the eight ball, does the eight ball go, and then backwards from there to make sure everything you have an opportunity at the other seven balls. It's it's reverse engineering, sort of. You say, how do I get to the eight ball at the end, and how do I prevent my opponent from having a shot with the eight ball at the end? Correct. Is that what we're talking about? Correct. And and you'll often hear somebody say, oh, well, I almost beat you. I got all my balls off the table. But in some cases, I want them to get all their balls off the table and be out of be out of my way. But some of it isn't just about strategy. Some of it is, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the weeds. You have to break Right, and that that requires a really skillful stroke with power, that to to break up that triangular nesting of balls and to yep. send them in their way, so you're spreading them out so that you can have access to the balls that you want to hit. Yeah, we don't normally associate women with powerful uh, athletic strokes in the same way as we, due to sexism, stereotypically associate men with that. Is is there a big difference in a, a male's break as opposed to a female's break? I don't think there is. I don't think it's so much about strength as about the speed of the stick. So it's, it's, um, it's technique more than anything. Kind of like swinging a bat. Yeah, guys that are stronger can hit it further. But a girl with a, a, fast, a good swing and a fast bat speed can hit a home run as well. I've seen, when I played softball when I was younger, I've seen the smallest girls could hit the ball the furthest. It wasn't about size or strength, so it really is more about technique in the break as well. Is this are these skills you think you were born with? I, I I remember the first time I picked up a stick and remembering I just I understood I understood where I needed to if I hit to the side of the ball it would make it go that way. Um, so yeah, kind of because there's other people who can't see that like I can. I'm interested in your Western Massachusetts roots, and. You become better, I assume, and became better, I assume, by playing with skillful pool players. Does that mean we have a cadre of really good pool players here? This area does have some strong players. Um, and as I said, the, the man that taught me, he dabbled in the pros for years. Um, he beat some of the best players in the world, you know, before I came around, before he knew me. So my introduction to pool was Paul Newman in The Hustler. Mm -hmm. And what I want to know is, is that sort of real? Is there still pool hustles that go on? Does it happen here? Very much so. Um, really? There's not here necessarily, but um, there is that romantic underworld, so to speak, of players who aren't on the pro tour but can really play. And instead of going on uh, into tournaments and exposing themselves, they travel the country and go to different pool rooms and look for games. And by games, I mean money games. <laughs> and, and there are ringers? Oh, yeah. Uh, and they can only, typically they can only do it for so long before their name is out there. And then they have to go somewhere else? Or they go by a different name. <laughs> <laughs> let, let, me just, let me just amplify that. So somebody will go and act like they can't play very well for a few games until the money, the pots get bigger, and then they show what they really got. There's all different kinds of hustles other than just that standard one, but yes. Wow. Stacy Bourbeau, 
is there a, a difference in the quality of the men's game at the, at the amateur level that you were that you are now champion of than the women's game? There is. Um, the men do typically have a stronger field of players, um, and there's a few reasons for that. I believe Mo mainly, like for example, I've said this. Many people have heard me say this. Uh, if you have a high school with 1,200 people and a high school with 400 people, who's going to have the better football team? And that's just simply because there's a lot more men that play pool than women. But the championship that you were in, it's not divided by gender. Uh, mine was, yes. It I, was. I, mine, she is the women's champion. Yep. Okay. So is that, is that typical? I mean, is that, that's the way that most most pool tournaments are set up? Mostly, yes. Not always. And, and the women um, are always invited to play with the men, <laughs> for obvious reasons. You mean you could compete in uh, the yes. male championship? There was a female, and they call it the Open. They don't call it the men's. They call it the Open and the women's. Um, and there was a female, good for her, who stepped into the uh, Open event this year. She was. I saw her match on YouTube, actually. So I'd be interested. Uh, feel free not to answer this. When you're at a... Uh, pool hall do uh people recognize you and or do people say well there's someone i might be able to hustle and you then hustle the hustler tell us about that if you would and if you want to not just tell me no no i mean it it happens and if a if a man looks over and sees a woman who can shoot decent he's probably if he's a decent player he's going to assume that decent is not going to be good enough or maybe he'll think because she shoots decent she thinks she's better than she actually is, and he can take advantage of that. Uh, it does happen, yes. So at pool halls here in western Massachusetts, well, let's back up a second. Are, do you have favorite pool halls here in western Massachusetts? I have. Um, there's very few nine-foot tables around here, which is what uh, we used in the amateur championship. Um, the nearest one that I play at is at a place in Holyoke called Ivory Billiards. Um, I go down there as much as often as I can, but it is still an hour drive from my house, so it doesn't happen as often as I'd like. And you rent the table? Who pay, who pays for the tables? It's table time. Um, both players that are playing usually split it, or that might be part of the gamble. Winner winner gets the time. Uh, loser pays the time. Wow, not that often. Sometimes we'll have regional champions in the studio. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we'll have state champions in the studio. We have a national. The best two years in a row and three years overall, the best woman amateur pool player in the country right here on WHMP. We're going to be back with Stacey Bourbeau and talk more pool right after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Sending, requesting, and receiving money person to person is a snap with Zelle and the Greenfield Savings Bank mobile app. Zelle is a free benefit of GSB Online Banking. 
Once you've enrolled, whenever you need to send or receive money from family, friends, or people you trust, just use your GSB mobile app to go to Zelle. For instance, when you bought the advanced tickets for a movie or concert and your friend needs to pay you back, just tell them to go to Zelle. Or when you need to split the tab at a restaurant, tell your friends to go to Zelle. When you need to pay the babysitter, go to Zelle. When your kid at college texts you that they need cash right away, or when you need to pay the landlord, tell them to go to Zelle. The possibilities are endless with Zelle and Greenfield Savings Bank. Zelle and Greenfield Savings Bank, the fast, easy, safe way to send, request, and receive money from friends, family, and people you trust. Member FDIC, member DIF. Mobile carrier charges may apply. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking to national champion Stacey Bourbeau of the U.S. Amateur Pool Championships. Two years in a row, three years totally. She is the best in the United States, best amateur woman pool player in the United States. I want to ask you, Stacey, so you walk into this room, in this case, in Orlando, Florida. It is huge. There are so many tables. There are spectators. There are some of the finest players in the world of both genders. Um, and how do you focus on the ball, your stick, the cue ball, the, the hole that you're shooting for? How do you focus with all that distraction? It is actually extra hard for me because I, I don't necessarily like being center stage but for some reason, when I do this, I can block everything out and get in the groove. And that's what happened in the finals this year. It felt really good. I'm not going to let you off the hook with for some reason. How do you, when you do this, have that level of focus? It must be that innate thing that I have. Um, it's what I've done for 30 years. I love to compete. It's probably the competitiveness is what allows me to put the focus in. When you played softball, were you able to focus the same way? Yep. Yeah, anything. And it's not It's not a, always about winning. Yes, I am very competitive. Everybody that knows me knows I love to win everything I do. But for me, it's more about competing with myself and knowing that I can be good and knowing I can accomplish what I'm seeing in front of me. Stacey Burbo, do you bring any of the skills to the rest of your life, the skills that you have as a billiards player, as a pool player, do they impact the rest of your life, your work, your other relationships? Absolutely. Um, it's a very, and, th and this goes back to another thing we were talking about, where why men are better than women. It's a very emotional game. Um, controlling emotions in order to get um, the task in, hand, in front of you, the shot, if need be accomplished, is a huge feat for this game. Tell us about planning the next shot. I, I, that's what it, I mean. That's the part of pool that I find uh, 
fascinating. I'm so interested, actually, in seeing that the ball go in the pocket. Um, I care less about the next shot, and I think I'll worry about that when it, when, when it, we get to it. But that's not how you play. No. And it was. Tell it, us how you do play. It was ingrained in me by the man that mentored me when I was younger. Why make that shot if you don't have another one? Um, so the best compliment that I've ever gotten is that I make it look easy. And by that, I mean I'm playing angles, I'm playing speeds on the cue ball that's set up for the next shot uh, appropriately. Well, go back to that. If you don't, if you see, I see there's a ball I can make. I can, I can put that in the right corner pocket. Fine. But if I do that, I don't have a next shot. What do you do? Well, the, you could play a safety, but I'm, I would advise not to make the shot <laughs> to begin with. Um, put it in a better place. Put it somewhere where you can use it for something better, such as to break out balls that you can't get sh a shot at. Put it in a place where your opponent's going to have a really hard time with their next shot? Yes. That's what we're saying? Yeah. Well, the, there's safeties. There's, um, there's moving. What's a safety? A safety is where you can block behind your balls, usually, um, so that the opponent does not have an eye on their next shot, on any shots. But you still have to hit your one of your balls, and mm -hmm. you have to you have to call it. Um, or no. It depends on the on the rules. There's different rules for different venues. In this case, in the um, in the U.S. Amateurs, uh, there you do not have to call, but you do have to hit your ball first, and something either has to make contact with a rail or a pocket um, after contact in order for the opponent not to receive ball in hand. So again, I was watching the, the, the finals mm -hmm. match, which you won and became champion, uh, and I saw you place the ball that you didn't have a good shot at right in front of the pocket where your opponent would have been looking to place to, to, to bury her ball. I to just thought that was, ball. I was so jealous of you. <laughs> and it goes back to what I said earlier, how can I win the game? What, can, what move, it's a chess game, what move can I make that gives me a better shot at winning the game and her not? And so you were placing a ball that you couldn't make, that you couldn't get into the pocket, in front of the pocket? In front of a different pocket. <laughs> I, be, I believe I know what shot you're talking about, and I uh, I I went I got out of position. I actually got behind uh, one of her balls, and I could only see one of my balls. There you was were almost kissing her ball. I was I would think I was frozen to it. I didn't have much angle to even hit my ball. It was and that's because you can't use her ball to hit your ball. Correct. Right. You have to make contact with your own ball first. First. Um, so I got out of position, and there was no she had three or four balls on the table, there was no way I could not leave her something to shoot at. So my best chance in that case, the eight ball was semi-tied up. In other words, it had one pocket to go in. And with what I was, what I had laying in front of me, all I could do was just make something better for me and worse for her, put my ball closer to the pocket, and block the eight ball in I the so wish we had more time to talk to Stacey Bourbeau of Orange. She is the national U.S. women's pool champion obviously she has skills she can execute the shots she has insight she can see the entire table and she has strategy and most of all she has a competitive nature that brings her well pretty close to perfection the last two years and for a third time the united states national amateur women's pool champion right here from Orange, Massachusetts. Stacey Borbo, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. And like Stacy, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. WHMP 